you know, you won't remember this, but one time you and I had an argument. You'd be surprised. Uh, well, no, probably about who sweats the most. Oh, because yeah. there aren't many women in America who have had to stand there while Patrick Ewing is raining down, you know, on your head. And um, you had, uh, we both had Moses. We both had Ewing. Well, I got the list because I was there. Well, you did not have Charles Barkley, and he should have been on there. No, the list is this. Number one, Wilt. Number two, Moses. Moses. Number three, me, Bill Wall. Number four, Ken Kesey. Number five, Patrick Ewing. Charles can be six, but I'm not giving up any of the top five. I don't remember you dripping on me oh, at all. Man. I don't, but Moses, big I time. Sweat you really? I sleep. <laughs> but, well, and Ken Kesey, is there an explanation to that? Oh, no, Ken, he's a sweater. You know, he, he's, he's deceased. Now, see, th three of the five are already passed away. Wilt, Moses, and Ken. I'm reading a superb book right now by one of Ken's partners, uh, Ken Babs, who was a tremendous basketball player in his own right. Uh, college, uh, Miami of Ohio, played with Wayne Embry, and they made it to the Elite Eight in the 50s before losing to the eventual champion Kentucky. And anyway, Ken Babs and Ken Kesey connected at Stanford Graduate School of Creative Writing. Yes, it was creative. <laughs> it was creative. And then they went on and they formed uh, this uh, uh, a very structured organization called <laughs> The Merry Pranksters. And this book is uh, just coming out. I'm going to be part of the launch. I'll tell you what's a great book um, that... Uh, did you read The Warmth of Other Suns? Yes, by, Isabel okay. Wilkerson. Oh, yes, yes. Great, right? Her latest book is called Cast. I read that too, yes. You I did? Read. I mean, it was fascinating that in America, it's more hidden, but it's the same as India. It's the same as Nazi Germany, that we have we have had a caste system here that is just sort of covered up or moved around. But it, it, it's not covered. It's not covered up. Some people just turn a blind eye to it. Correct. Well, gerrymandering hurt. You know, we did things politically. And just one of the things that is so impressive about you is that you never turn away. You always are right there. And you, yeah. are, you are just this beacon of hope and this shining star and this pillar of integrity and credibility that makes me proud to be an American. It makes me proud to be your friend. Oh, well, you know, what I think part of it is that. You, you more so than me, but I was a child of the 60s. You know, my family moved a lot. My dad was raised in Amsterdam under the Nazis. He wasn't Jewish, but he he was um, the Nazi the Nazi boot for five years. You know, Rotterdam first bombed in 40, liberated in 45. And so when I used to say, you know, I want to be a sports writer, job didn't exist for women. And my mom gave me the best advice. So we were 10 years old. We moved a lot. We were living in Cincinnati. That's when Kay, when uh, Kuzi was the player coach. It was really yeah. fun. Yeah. And um, my mom said to me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And she didn't say, you know, oh, you can't do that. Girls don't do that. You could be a teacher, a domestic, a nurse, you know, secretary. She said to me, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. Oh, absolutely. So that's how I was raised. But, you know, in the 60s, we and especially out in the Berkshires, you'd get off school to go for a civil rights march or, you know, a women's rights march. And I think 
we did have that ethic in the 60s that um, it is what can you do for your country? Well, Woody Guthrie, with all his incredible songs, particularly in this instance, This Land is Your Land, and he sings all the verses, and he comes to the one where he talks about he, he's out walking the land, this land is your land, and he comes across a sign, and the sign says, no trespassing. And so he stands up and he looks around and there's nobody there. And he looks on the other side of the sign and there's nothing on the other side. And he, <laughs> says, he says, this side is made for you and me. And so he just he just kept going. Kept going. Well, remember the song in 76? It was around our bicentennial and it was a Neil Sedaka song called The Immigrant. The lines are beautiful. It's, um, there was a time that strangers were welcomed here. There was a time the skies were free and clear. And it was just all about, yes, that's what, you know, we are a nation of immigrants. My dad's an immigrant. Uh, we're all immigrants. We're all immigrants. We're all immigrants. And, you know, wherever that got lost. But um, I don't know. It used to be we were proud of immigration. I still am. Yes, I meant as a country, you know, we weren't pulling up the bridge behind us. Well, look, there's plenty of good out there. Our job is to find it and push our way through the, the nonsense, the absurdity, the hypocrisy and the distractions, the evil, the selfishness, the greed, and the ridiculous nature of people who don't see, don't see the clarity of, of kindness and goodness and appreciation, respect, tolerance, patience, perspective, relativity. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. It's taken me quite a long time to get here. Yeah, for a guy who stuttered with a collapsed spine, you've, uh, <laughs> wouldn't you say you're, you know, if you can't, because there's a difference, you know, Jane Austen, of course, every woman loves Pride and Prejudice. But uh, in there, she makes the point that there's a difference between pride and vanity. Does that hit you as real? Absolutely. You know, pride and ego are tremendous as long as they're kept in check. You know, pride and ego are used to make you great, to make you better, to make you want to be the best. But when you lose sight of the goal, when you lose sight of the, of, of the big picture of what we're trying to do here, and, you know, when you're faced with a world, a world grown dark and mean, when you're faced with a world that is overrun by selfishness and individual agendas and egos that are out of control and no willingness to live a life of honor, a life of sacrifice, and a life of discipline, all the things that are going to get you to a better place in the group dynamic that we all live in. I mean, we're, not, we're not living here in, in isolation. We're not living on an island all by ourselves. You know, this is a, a big world and everything and everyone is connected. And we all have responsibilities. We have responsibilities, public health responsibilities. We have social responsibilities. We have uh, personal responsibilities. You know, um, Dan Shaughnessy and I talk about this. We were both blessed. If you grew up in Massachusetts, the Celtics were such great role models because um, 
our high school coaches took that idea of the Celtics, you know, that was such great role models. It was never about me. And um, I that always, comes back to Red Auerbach. Yes. And that, you know, it always comes back to leadership. And then, yeah. and then, you know, when you have your best player, and that was Bill Russell. And, you know, there was other great players. Sam Jones, remarkable. Havlicek, spectacular. Bob Cousy, so far ahead of his time. Bill Sharman, Frank Ramsey, Tommy Heinsohn, Satch Sanders. But um, what I was going to say was when you were growing up, um, my husband, Bob, who you met, was the yes. captain of Harvard basketball. I met basketball. him at the recent Hall of Fame. He was Correct. The, he was the Correct. captain of the Harvard basketball team. He was. And he grew up in Columbus, Who was his Ohio. coach? Was his coach Satch? Yes, for he... one year. For one, Floyd Wilson and Satch. But, um, and they used to leave him tickets to the game. But get this. He grew up very lower middle class, a lot of dignity, but not much money. And they used to take boarders. He grew up right on the Ohio State, like it was campus housing. So his mother, they would take in boarders. And right behind him, Larry Siegfried and Havlicek rented one of those, you know, garage apartments or whatever. So Bob, growing up, got to rebound for those guys in the backyard. And it was like the privilege of his life. What an incredible honor. The same thing happened to me, not that we were taking in borders, but my parents, my dad was a social worker, an adult educator, and a music teacher. My mom was a town's librarian. We always had people, young people coming into the house and uh, looking for the, what we had, which was a, a remarkable family unit. And But there was always food, and there was always books, and there was always music. And then when I was eight years old, I found my first coach. And my first coach was this remarkable human being who coached at our elementary school as a volunteer for 59 years. 59 years, never took a penny. When he died a few years ago, he was the richest guy I've ever known. Rich in the intangible ways, and in, in, in things you cannot measure. Not everything that counts can be counted. Not everything that can be counted counts. And so here was, now I'm nine years old. What's his name? I'm sorry. I'm his name was Rocky. He coached every student, every grade, every level, every sport, every day, all year round. He, he, and he was the fireman. He was, his job was a fireman. And he would just tell the fire station that after school would get out and he would just tell the fire station, I'll be down at the park with the children. You, if there's a fire, if there's a fire, just come and get me. He went on to become a legendary chief. Then when I was nine, when I was nine, you talk about your husband, Bob, growing up with Havlicek and Siegfried. So when I was nine, this is 1961. L.A. Chargers from the NFL, they moved to San Diego, and they chose as their practice facility a public park, Sunset Park, one half mile from our family home. And every day in the afternoon, I would get on my bike, I'd get on my skateboard and ride up to the park and cling on the fence, just hang on the fence and watch all these AFL legends. I mean, the quarterbacks were Tobin Rode, John Hadel, and Jack Kemp. The running backs were Keith Lincoln and Paul Lowe. The receivers were Gary Garrison and Lance Allworth. And who were two guys 
on on Don Coriel's staff. John Madden and Al Davis. And uh, wasn't Joe Gibbs also? Joe Gibbs was on there too. And so San Diego State, where you're talking about, and that's one mile the other direction from Sunset Park, from our family home. And so to grow up under this whole culture of Sid Gilman and Earl. Of excellence. And it was it just so inspiring. Chuck Allen, Earl Faison, and, uh, just, and, and they were so nice to me. Little, little Billy with his red hair and his speech <laughs> freckles. And, uh, and they, every day, the team would, you know, they'd be coming out and they would just walk by and, you know, rub my head and say, well, hey, how you doing there? And it wasn't too much longer afterwards that the NBA came to San Diego. And that was when I was 14 in 1967. And, and then the first year, this was an expansion team, but the first year players were uh, Jim Barnett, Pat Riley, John Block, and, and Don Coaches, And soon to be joined by Elvin Hayes, Rudy Tomjanovich, Calvin Murphy, and Stu Lance. And the basketball brain trust for these players was it was Pete Newell, it was Tex Winter, Alex Hannum, and Jack McMahon. If I tell you an embarrassing story, will you never repeat it? The final four, of which I've now covered 35 of them, um, I remember, uh, you know, all the coaches at the final four would stay in one hotel because it was the coaches convention also. So one time I'm with Hoops Weiss and Ryan and Feinstein. The four of us always were covering all the same games. So uh, we go over to the coach's hotel and I see Pete Newell and I had covered the 84 um, Olympics in LA. I'd covered the basketball there, but I just knew him from afar, right? He was the great, you know, the great Pete Newell. Okay. So he's in the lobby. So I say to these other guys, I'll be back. I'm just going to go over across the lobby for a minute. And I went up to him and I said, I, I just have to thank you. You know, I'm Leslie Visser from the Boston Globe. I, I just have deep respect for all you've done for basketball. And I don't know when I'd ever get a chance to tell you. And you know, we looked kind of startled, like, okay, thank you. And then I went back over to the group and I said, oh my God, I've always wanted to tell Pete Newell how great he was, great he is. And Feinstein said to me, oh, well, that's nice, but that's not Pete Newell. That's Charlie Spoonhour. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, Very pretty nice. Bad. Pretty bad. So Pete Newell and John Wooden were super close. Of course they were, yes. And, yes. and so all these people had just this incredible influence on my life and, and, and who, uh, who I was trying to be and, and how I was going to play. And then the whole time, with the, you know, to be able to listen. Because once I found Chick Hearn, then, you know, I was hooked. I mean, I never missed a Chick Hearn broadcast. And it was just spectacular that the, the trips that he would take you on because Chick's mind uh, it worked like I could only dream. No, you do live like that. Having done games with you, I remember I remember two things about doing games with you. One time you somehow compared Linda Ronstadt to some half court offense that wasn't working. Now, what do you think that was? It was clear as could be. I love music. Yeah, tell me, do you know when you were a sophomore, do you know that every kid in America in college at that time, we all had the same three albums? Doesn't matter what else you had, and then I need to hear more about your playlist for the dead. But I guarantee you, everybody you knew in college, this was true in Boston, it was true wherever you went in the country, we all had Carol King's Tapestry. Yeah. 
We all had uh, every picture tells a story. Yes. And then the third one everybody had was um, Sweet Baby James. James Taylor. I just saw him the other day. Yeah. Fantastic. He was on tour with with Jackson Brown. Yes. Through town here. It was just absolutely spectacular. You know, when you see that Laurel Canyon effect that, you know, they all gravitated there. That was our that was our college experience. Wow. Really? Every day. You know, we'd have schools. Our classes started at 7 a.m. We'd have classes from 7 till noon. Then we'd have lunch. Then we'd play basketball all afternoon at Poly Pavilion. And then we'd have dinner. And then we would be out on the streets of Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard. And, and every night there was a show somewhere. And it was just absolutely spectacular. So you went to the Troubadour like hundreds yeah. of times? Yeah, it was as often as we could. And saw all those people? As often as we could, but but it wasn't just the it wasn't you know just the smaller clubs on Sunset Boulevard. It was the big concert venues too. It was the Forum. It was the Santa Monica Civic. The bands would come and play at UCLA. When I was at UCLA, the Grateful Dead came and played every fall. It was basically a christening of the season, getting us ready to go and win another championship. Were you immediately welcomed by them, or it took a number of years? I became a fan at 15. I, I met them uh, seven years later in 1974. I didn't. I had a number of opportunities to meet them, but I was too shy and I was too self-conscious about my stuttering and speech limitations. And so I just chose to stay in the background. When your playlist, did you, they asked you, you said, or you were going to tell me they asked you once to do a playlist or many times? I would show up. Over the years, and you know, I'm a deadhead, a very proud, very loyal, and very grateful deadhead. And I've been to over a thousand shows in 54 years, or is it 50, it's 55 years now? We just had a new year turn. And so, over the years, I, I have changed a lot. They have changed a lot. Everything has changed. But over the years, I, you know, I would ask them to play a song or two. I would uh, ask them to play a venue or two. I would show up uh, with a with a handwritten list of all the songs I wanted them to play, and then give it to them. I would I would I would call them up on the night before they were going to plan the tour and say, "Please go to these venues." And, and I have completely changed. I don't do any of that anymore. I, I just I, I don't care what they play anymore, and I don't care where they play. I only care that they play at all and how they play. They're playing better than ever. I wish they played more often. You took Larry to some concerts? I took the whole team to the concerts. Did you really? Everybody, Danny Ainge, he wouldn't go. What about Scott Wedman? Oh, Scott loved it, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. We all, I used to think that, and I used to think and I used to say that, that Danny Ainge didn't go because his wife wouldn't let him. But Danny recently corrected me. He, <laughs> he said he didn't go because he didn't want to go. Wow. Major miss. Well, that's, that's his problem. There's more room for us. I have a few more things. One, that you start with John Wooden and you are a, you know, tie-dyed, dead-loving um, young man who... Let me interrupt you right there. Sure. I was Coach Wooden's easiest recruit. 
I became his worst nightmare, and I drove the poor guy to an early grave at 99. But but when, when I was growing up, every coach, every teacher that I had in school, every one of them were John Wooden disciples. And every one of them revered this guy. And, and, I, and, and they tried to imitate him in what they were trying to do in, as human beings. And then my parents were like the greatest parents ever. And we lived in San Diego. And, you know, it's just beautiful every single day. And I thought that's the way the world was. And I got to UCLA and it was like, okay, you know, this is this was the path of, of it that, that everyone has had in their life. And I learned, I learned it when I, when I got to the NBA that that was not the case. Yes, no, it does not all look like La Jolla. <laughs> but no. what I wanted to ask you is, um, so you, uh, Coach Wooden understands that you have to write a letter to Nixon asking him to resign. No, he didn't understand that. I, I didn't. Oh, he didn't. But he put up with it. He said, traded you to cut your hair or what was the deal there? No, he had, uh, I had been arrested at a peace rally. And so he was mad as could be. Mad. He, he told me that that was just unacceptable. And that he said, instead of being arrested, you should write letters expressing your dissatisfaction. And so I did that on his stationery. <laughs> and signed it, coach. <laughs> Dear Mr. Nixon. I signed it. All the players signed it. And then I asked him to sign it, and he wouldn't do it. But he didn't tear it up in front of me. He handed it back to me in perfect condition. And I sent it in to Nixon. And part of the, the conclusion of the letter was a request, a specific request, that uh, Nixon uh, resign. And, and, and I thanked him in advance for his cooperation. And uh, I sent it in. And sure enough, the guy resigned, and not too much longer afterwards. But tell me, so... So John Wooden uh, uh, teaches you lessons, you know, all over the place. And then you go to Red Auerbach, uh, eventually, who, um, you know, you were still a, a deadhead, pot-smoking guru. But what do you think both of those men saw in you? An enthusiastic and willing participant in the game of life. And uh, so someone who, was, uh, who loved basketball, someone who... Uh, loved nothing more than than being on the winning team. They're such icons, you know, I guess to us that, although Red, did you ever go have Chinese food with Red or many All times? The time. All the time. I, I remember that I was super lucky when I was in Boston and, that, and how much time I got to spend with Larry Bird because uh, I, I made a point. Larry did not have children at the time. And uh, we did. We, we had four children. And so I would drop the children at school and then I'd head over to Larry's house. Being with Larry Bird, being with Larry Bird, that was like being on a, uh, on a tropical island. It was just like so much heat, and so much action, so much going on, so much life and growth. All right. Just tell me a couple last things. Tell me about today's NBA. Better than ever. Better than ever. Is that right? You're a fan of the step back three in the ISO game? Sure. Why not? I mean, you know, I love, I love the Kevin Durant, Giannis, uh, Steph Curry, 
and LeBron James. You know, those are the four guys who are controlling the league right now. Yeah, but everybody can't do what they do. It's always been that way. No, are you watching the Celtics in the fourth quarter? They just run the clock down and have some ISO play. I mean, it's... Uh... I try to watch the Celtics whenever I can. But I the, the, the nice thing about the technology that we have today mm-hmm. is that you can always watch the best game of the night. Although the coaches, all those great Eastern coaches that I sort of grew up in the business with, which, you know, Raftery and Karnaseka and PJ. And we, so one of the things they used to say was that technology in some ways ruined the hang because it used to be that after a game, win or lose, you know, Bayheim, they'd all go out together. But then once technology came in, then people would go home and watch the game all night. The re, you know, they would, they wouldn't just look at the stats and order a couple more beers that everybody went his we own way. We go out after the games. We always go out to dinner after the games. And it's fantastic. You're calling them now. Yeah, but we still have a team. We have a director. You know, you, you had Bob Stenner and Sandy Grossman. And I had um, Wolf and Suzanne Smith. And we had great ones. But that's, that's not the same as, you know, it's like if Seton Hall... If PJ would play, if Wagner would play Seton Hall, Raftery and PJ would go out. The opposing coaches would go out together. No, we never did that. If they were on the if they were on the other team, we didn't want anything to do with them. <laughs> well, I there was something to a college hang like that, though. That I think as the money got bigger, you know, it um, it's or maybe the Northeast was just Italian. You know, it was Patino, and it was all the these guys, these sort of urban. Uh, New York City guys, and it was a blast to go hang around with them. Yeah, well, we hung around with our team. We wanted to hang around with our team and our players and our and our broadcast teams. Yeah, and just how yeah. And, and how and how fun that is. And and I I was really pleased to see how well the Madden movie portrayed the friendships. Oh, hang was his favorite thing. Yeah, that was his favorite thing. The hang and, and the enjoyment of of life, uh, you know, through sport, through football, through competition. When you were growing up, did you have a sense of the Celtics that Red had drafted the first black player, first starting five, first black coach, or you were aware of that even? Oh, yeah. Well, one of the books that my mom brought home was Go Up for Glory in 1964, Bill Russell's first book. One of my first books, also Dan Shaughnessy's, was My Life in Basketball by Bob Cousy, as told to Al Hirschberg. <laughs> I, I missed that one. You missed that one. That's not on my bookshelf. But my picture with Sam Jones is over here, as I told you. Every day since I was nine, dressing up as Sam Jones. I love Sam Jones. And what a classy dude. And what a great player. And to see the way that the Celtics played and, and their, their belief in the team, their confidence in each other, their willingness to sacrifice for the success of other people and the joy that they all got by seeing their teammates succeed. Which you fit in perfectly, didn't you, into that? Nobody on the Celtics, nobody on any of John Wooden's UCLA teams ever sat around and wished that one of your teammates would have a bad game so that you would play more or that you could get more shots. No, you you work together. So that whoever develops the hot hand during the course of the game becomes the star. 
Yeah, and Robert Parrish, who just has so much respect for you. He was, he was so great. He's so great. He was so fun to play with. He was such a good, such a good player and such a steady, sturdy, just rock of Gibraltar type of human being. And then fun as can be off the court, serious as can be on the court. Yes. Yeah. But he said that um he did acknowledge that he subjugated himself a little bit. He knew that my role for this is that um, Larry and Kevin are going to have a more spotlight. They're going to shoot every time they touch it. Well, yes. <laughs> you are such a joy. I always tell this when I speak. It's my story because everybody just wants to know about all the people you work with. And I always tell the story of it was in 2002 and um, we were doing the West Regional Semifinal and it was Arizona against Oklahoma. And, you know, I loved your son. I think I had a crush on him. I did have a crush on him. And we were doing the game and you started saying, Walton, that's a terrible pass. Walton, what are you doing? And you went on and on until Father Dick had to finally say, now, now, Bill, I'm sure he's doing his best. (laughs) And that's why Dick Enberg was as close to John Wooden as any person I've ever come across. It was That's fantastic. why you're the angel of mercy in every Hall of Fame imaginable. And oh, God. that's well, why I am a lost sailor away too long at sea, wandering aimlessly, hopelessly, helplessly in the desert. Do you know, I'll leave you with this and then please share with me one of yours. I actually had this, the privilege for five seconds of meeting Nelson Mandela. Did you ever? You probably I did. never got that. No. For five seconds. Right. And he does have that aura. He absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's an aura around him. And, you know, his great thing. I'm a big fan of his. Oh, sport has the power to change the world, right? That was his. Well, do you know that um, you're going to love this? Sport not only has the power, sport does change the world. It does change the world. It does. It does. Um, You know, NBA Africa has saved millions of lives. NBA Africa is going to be one of the great things ever in the history of anything. I mean, what an incredible concept. And it encompasses everything. Basketball, business, human relations, uh, development, opportunity. I mean, you you name it. It's just fantastic. Well, so um, Nelson Mandela, as you know, he was in 27 years in prison, Robbins Island off um, uh, in South Africa. And you probably know that he could touch either side of the cell with his but he never was bitter, right? He came out, he embraced the all-white rugby team, and he um, he used to recite a poem. I don't know if you know this. He would recite every night before he went to bed. He would recite Invictus, which is actually a poem written by a white Victorian Englishman, which is, you wouldn't think Mandela. And the last stanza of it is, oh God, I used to know this. Um, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Beautiful. Every Inspirational. Night. Thank you, Nelson Mandela. Thank you, Leslie Visser. And thank you, William. <laughs> I love you. Thank you. It's just a joy. You're a joy. I look forward to our futures together. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. 
In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.